Hi, everyone. Welcome to the March 18th, 2022 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's get right to it. The 2022 Colorado legislative session has reached its halfway point and legislators did not get good news to mark the occasion. Legislative analysts reported to state lawmakers this week that Colorado is expected to see over 7% inflation in 2022 and nearly 4% growth in inflation in 2023. Legislators are taking the reports into account as the next budget is being finalized. Patty Calhoun from Westward, as always, we start with you. I don't think this was a shocking headline for anyone in Colorado, whether you're buying groceries or gas, you know inflation's an issue. But the fact that it's going to continue to grow this year, um, it seems to have a lot of ramifications. What do you think will be the effect of the headlines this week? We're going to have people getting more and more peeved, especially as you go to the gas station. I live right by Zunai and Spear, where the two most expensive gas stations are in Denver, Colorado. And right now, they are actually just as high everywhere else, Three ninety nine. I almost crashed my car when I saw that we have hit that level. So it is not just a 7% if you go and buy some groceries and you go and buy gas. If you try to get airline tickets right now because you finally are thinking you can go somewhere, that some of those have gone much higher than 7%. There is good news, too. I mean, we have more money coming into the general fund. We're going to be over $16 billion. We have, um, the raises have come in. People are, what, 5.8, I think, is the average raise. Unfortunately, it's completely wiped out by, found, uh, by inflation. We have money coming back because of Tabor, which will maybe buy you a half tank of gas. So it's going to be tough times. I think what we're going to hear right now is the drumbeat to get rolled back the gas tax, not just federally, but the 22% in Colorado. I think that's where we're going to see it. David Kopel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. David, you know, taking the segue from Patty here on Tabor, uh, there is a sign from uh, legislative analysts that we're looking at uh, bigger Tabor refunds the next couple of years. And there's been a whole lot of discussion around the different election years about uh, cutting tax rates and Tabor's popularity overall. It's, it is a lot of those passed way back in 92, so there's a lot of education to be done there. Do you think the talk of inflation and Tabor refunds will adjust the conversation in 2022? Well, remember that the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights says that government can always grow automatically by inflation. So the legislature gets to spend all of that and population growth. And then if the legislature wants to keep the money, that excess money, and spend even more, they just have to ask the voters. Um, I think what they're moving towards is something that's uh, perhaps sensible, which is reduce taxes, and especially where people are being hardest hit by inflation, um, on necessities. Because uh, a lot of the growth in state revenue is coming from the sales tax. So there's a bill uh, that's uh, I, I think has already passed to eliminate taxes, sales, the state sales tax on feminine hygiene products. Another bill, which has bipartisan support, is to get rid of the, the sales tax on what's called prepared food. You know, so if you go to the 7-Eleven and you buy a pizza to take home, you don't pay sales tax on that. But if you go to the 7-Eleven and you buy a sandwich, you do pay a sales tax on that. And the idea of this distinction that, oh, only rich people eat in restaurants or, or get, get a sandwich from 7-Eleven, that's kind of based on a 1950s Susie Homemaker kind of thing, where dad's working and mom takes care of, takes care of all the food prep. And so... If you're going to a restaurant, you're just being lazy because you had time to make dinner at home. That's not true for single parents these days. It's not true for a lot of families uh, where both parents have to work to make ends meet. And uh, I, I think it would be fair and a good way uh, to invest that taper surplus in a constructive way uh, to benefit the people. 
Also join us, Eric Sonderman, a longtime political analyst here at PBS 12, also a columnist with the Gazette newspapers in Colorado Politics. Uh, Eric, this seems to me like a headline that would be that we're going to see in a lot of different forms throughout the rest of the year. It is both a real impact for citizens, but it's going to be, I think, an even greater impact on the political campaigns. Uh, what do you think we'll see from this moving forward? Well, I think you nailed it, Dominic. I mean, this is not going away, uh, either politically or far more importantly in real life. Patty mentioned gasoline and airline tickets. We're in the process of trying to help our daughter and, and a longtime boyfriend get into a starter home. I mean, a starter home in the Denver market these days is unlike anything uh, you might imagine in terms of price and the escalation in price week after week after week. I mean, if you don't buy this week, it's going to be higher next week. Uh, it is quite something to behold. Uh, the impacts are real. Uh, and they are tangible. I think one of the, uh, shifting to the political sector, you know, there is a battle. It's an ongoing battle. It's predictable who's going to fall on what side in terms of Tabor and what to do with refunds. Democrats being Democrats always have an idea of how that money could be better used, uh, put to use uh, for some government program. Republicans are, tend to be in, in favor of returning it to taxpayers. Democrats run this state, but there's a huge variable there, which is, his name is Jared Polis. He's the governor, and he is not on board with a lot of these notions of not returning uh, this surplus money in the form of refunds. So I think one of the battles is going to be an internal Democratic battle between a lot of the legislative Democrats and Polis sitting down in that first floor uh, corner office. And, and lastly, I'd just note that in any inflationary budget, there are going to be items that you sort of roll your eyes at. I noticed one of them in a budget request, which is the state treasurer's office, Dave Young, the incumbent state treasurer, is asking for a 31% increase in that office. I'd love to hear the rationale for why that office, even in inflationary time, needs to grow by 31% as opposed to by 5 or 6% or some number in that range. And joins for his first time on Colorado Inside Out, Tyrone Glover, uh, Glover uh, a civil rights attorney with uh, Tyrone Glover Law uh, and president of the Denver Bar Association. Tyrone, it's great to have you here on the show. Um, these headlines impact everybody. And again, it's not anything new that we're seeing. Folks uh, from all different sides of this uh, understand the impact. But clearly, this is going to be something that is going to draw out in politics and the rest of the legislative session moving forward. What do you expect to see as reactions from lawmakers and even in the election moving forward? You know, what I would hope, because like you said, this is expected. We knew that this was coming. And this is going to be a gut punch in, in a long line of what feel like unrelenting gut punches, right? And so what I would expect and what I would hope, what we've seen through this pandemic, uh, through the sort of downward spiral in our economies and the difficulties here in our communities is how it's impacting uh, those who are the most vulnerable you know, in Denver and in Colorado, the marginalized groups, the under-resourced communities. And so we know that when we see these sorts of inflation numbers on the horizons, you know, that's who's going to be disproportionately affected in so many ways. And so I would hope that our lawmakers really take a good, hard look at what's coming down the pipe um, and they recalibrate or adjust to make sure that when this does come, uh, we can weather it as a community together. You're here. 
Next topic, let's get to it. If you've been frustrated this week with the change for daylight saving time, you may have two options to vote on this issue on the issue this fall. Senate Bill 135 would ask voters to stay on standard time permanently, and House Bill 1297 would ask <coughs> voters to stay on daylight saving time permanently. Uh, David, besides a twice-a-year excuse of completely ruining um, our sleep, uh, what do you think will come of these different bills and potentially requests to voters in Colorado? Well, let's not forget that, that, that fall back gives you an extra hour of sleep on a, on a crucial <laughs> Sunday morning. Um, this is the perfect kind of thing for a referend, for referenda. You can make, there's good arguments on, on all pro-con on all sides, and so it, it, it's very appropriate for the, the voters to decide. I'd say as I start to learn about it and, and, and think about it, one thing I'll try to do is not just think about you know, the convenience of people in cities, because I, I understand how it works there, but how it's going to affect rural folks, uh, and, and also uh, people who work outside, uh, like in the construction industry. If we adopted permanent daylight savings time, that is what we have right today, um, that would mean that the uh, latest sunrise in most of Colorado would be as late as 8.30 a.m. sometimes and as late as 9 a.m. in parts of western Colorado. So I'd like to hear how that's going to affect their lives. Eric, this is a, uh, a fun topic to talk about. In fact, there, we even have congressional candidates in Colorado talking about this is a big deal. Even federal legislators or federal lawmakers are talking about this. I don't know if it's going to go anywhere. What's your gut instinct on this? It could go anywhere in a state like Colorado where not much gets done that doesn't go to the ballot box and ultimately get decided by the voters. As David pointed out, this issue is ripe for that for that kind of a forum. I may be in a minority here because I hear so many people complain about the spring forward fall back. I don't see what the big deal is. Have we gotten so soft? that twice a year we can't change our clocks. There is a logical reason for doing so. It's not just a whim. David pointed it out um, in terms of rural interest, agricultural interest, et cetera. I would take that same number about daylight, uh, sunrise coming at 8.30 in the morning in the dead of winter if we were to stick on daylight saving time year round and talk about school children. Do we want school children at bus stops or getting off of buses or getting out of mom and dad's car or however they get to school, you know, when it's still 90 minutes before the sun comes up? That makes no sense to me. I know this is a sexy topic. We have Scott Gates, uh, who's a friend of some of ours over on the Western Slope running for Congress and basing this whole campaign around this issue. I'm going to come down on the other side. This is not that broken, and we ought to be able to navigate the current system, which has a logic behind it of adjusting our clocks twice a year. Uh, Tyrone, in the old days, this was all about candles and light bulbs and everything else. It's clearly about something else now. Do you think we'll see some uh, uh, real debate, substance, substantive debate, debate coming from these issues? I believe so. You know, at the there's been research that's come out over over the years. Um, really calling into question this whole exercise that we go through in the spring. And as a, as a father of young children, uh, you know, we're sort of halfway through that second semester, um, you know, attention spans are waning, and then turning their 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. wake up into 5 a.m., um, you know, in their internal clocks. It's just, it's so disruptive. And I can only, you know, think of 
workers, especially essential workers who maybe don't have the, the luxury of rolling in to work a few minutes or a half hour late when this all happens, still having to get up, um, you know, someone with a 5 a.m. start time now getting up with their internal clock at 4 a.m. Um, I think there's, there's real community tax and some real, um, you know, a real toll that it almost takes. There's been a lot of research about the toll that it actually takes on your health. Um, so I think the disruptiveness of this exercise we go through every spring is not un outweighed by the prejudice, um, you know, the prejudicial effect essentially, right? Um, it's nice to have that, you know, extra hour gained in the fall, but the disruption we see every spring, I just, uh, I question it more and more uh, that I have on my plate. And, you know, I have, I think, the resources to deal with it. I can only imagine those in our, in our community who don't. Mm -hmm. Patty, there's a lot of real issues, like uh, Tyrone mentions. There's also a lot of great um, uh, reasons that this is a great scapegoat twice a year. This is the reason people drive terrible. This is the reason people are yawning at work. Uh, where do you think it goes from here? Well, I hope it goes federally because it's already chaotic enough if you're trying to call Arizona, for example. <laughs> I'm all for states' rights on certain issues, but this is one that I think a federal fix makes a lot more sense. And let me say, I'm a little disappointed in how weak you are, Dominic. At 7 a.m. out this past Sunday, I was observing my favorite annual celebration. You go to Lakeview Lounge on Sheridan, and you watch the sunrise from the bar at 7 a.m. because the sunrise was at 7.15, thanks to Daylight Savings Time. Every year, join us. It's always open. I, I, I apologize for missing again this year. Uh, I haven't seen a whole lot of sunrises in my career. I've seen a whole lot of sunsets. So maybe there's like a, a sunset at Lakeview Lounge. Maybe we can work that out. But yeah. Well, it's the wrong direction. <laughs> <laughs> good point. Good point. The Denver City Council has narrowed its redistricting efforts to two potential maps. The maps are being redrawn to accommodate the increase of over 100,000 new citizens since 2010. While both maps would create a minority majority uh, for minority majority districts, key differences lie in how North and South Park Hill would be divided and how Union Station and parts of downtown are represented. Uh, Eric, without getting into all the different details where the maps are, there is a lot of good conversations about how you divvy up communities of interest in Denver. And it's going smoother than the federal level did and even the state level did, but how do you, uh, how do you think the maps look and what it'll mean for Denver representation? So you're saying you don't want my PowerPoint at this point on, on <laughs> all the different maps, okay. Uh, I start with the fact that this is lower stakes than the redistricting that goes on of congressional districts and state legislative districts simply because there's really not a partisan element to this. Uh, Denver is dominated by Democrats. I believe all 13 members of Denver City Council are affiliated with the De Democratic Party. So you don't have the partisan element here. That doesn't mean it is unimportant. Obviously, growth throughout the city has been very unequal. Some areas have lost population. Some areas have close to doubled in size. So you're having to reconfigure how you create 11 equal uh, districts. I think there are a couple wrinkles. One map would put Park Hill, both North Park Hill and, and South Park Hill, into the Candy Cedabaca district. That strikes me as having interesting political dynamics, both for the representation of that district and maybe for the kinds of positions that uh, Councilwoman Cedabaca uh, tends to take. There's an issue of what you do with Lodo and Union Station and all that. Does it stay in the Cedabaca district? Or does it move over to Chris Hines's district, which has been historically much more of a Capitol Hill, central Denver district, but not going that far into downtown? 
They've narrowed it down to two maps. I'm not sure there's an obvious right answer, an obvious wrong answer. Uh, I think there's a majority starting to form behind uh, the first of those two maps and see where it goes. Tyrone, whether it's on the, the state level or the city level, the term communities of interest is always bantied about during this kind of process. Are the, is the Denver City Council looking uh, at the right definition of communities of interest in Denver? I mean, one thing that has been a bit disheartening to me about the, the, the debate around this issue is, you know, what I see is like the focus on now, right? We have, you know, all of this data, we have a snapshot of where we were versus where we currently are, right? So we should be able to sort of see trends in where uh, the different populations are, are shifting around in our city, right? And we know that, you know, rents and uh, home prices are increasing and have been increasing for some time rapidly. And uh, those prices are untenable for a lot of folks who live in our community. Uh, we know lots of people are moving out and, and leaving to the suburbs. And so, I would hope and um, you know, expect in the debate going forward uh, that we're just maybe a little more forward-looking, looking to the future, right? The decisions that we're making and dividing up these districts right now and what has concerned me is I've seen uh, communities where you have really strongholds of some of these more marginalized populations starting to be divided up in the wake of things like gentrification, in the wake of folks getting priced out of our, of our, our amazing city. Um, and so, living so much in the now and how this is going to affect uh, things politically. I think, you know, you have to absolutely do that as your analysis. But thinking, you know, what is this going to look like five, ten years down the line if current trends, and especially on the heels of inflation, uh, continue on. So um, I don't love either two of the ones that are, are, are currently on, on the table. I think there was one that didn't quite uh, make it through the, through the process that I thought was more equitable. Um, but, you know, I would just implore our, our, our city council to really think about the future as well as what we're doing presently. Patty, I imagine most of the haggling at the city council level was all about where Calhoun Manor would sit in the map. <laughs> but once that was figured out, what do you think about the maps? I've gone back and forth between, as they do nine and one. I think I'm in one at the moment. Sorry, Amanda Sandoval. Uh, so we started out, at one point we had like five maps. We're down to two. One was al already a consensus map that six people, six council members were pushing for. Uh, Kevin Flynn had one. He pulled it because he just didn't see that there was going to be a possibility. It's right to look to the future because these are not going to be Candy C. DeBaca or Chris Hines districts. They're going to be somebody else coming along who will have different views. So you can't do it. You cannot make the decision based on the politics of who's currently there. I think moving downtown makes some <coughs> sense now because it has more in common with, say, the Golden Triangle with Capitol Hill than it does with Globeville. And there are real issues in Globeville and Park Hill that you want an attentive council member. Uh, the proposal also, Candy C. DeBaca had pushed, to maybe get rid of the at-large or go up, to, go up to 13 or 15 council members. Go up to 13 so you can get the districts that are the right size and make more sense. That, it's too bad we didn't really look at that this time, but we didn't have much time. But I would say in the future with Denver growing, we've got to go that direction. David, any part of this process that you've seen that should raise an eyebrow? Well, Patty said that you can't take into account the political interest of the incumbent city council people uh, when drawing the lines, and I would suggest that Denver City Council will show that you can do that. <laughs> um, and ab about expanding the number, instead of 11 districts and two at large, the idea of 13 districts, um, 
it has to go to the, the voters by a city charter amendment. So it's possible they might approve that in this districts that are being drawn right now might be a one-time only thing. Using Westward, which has great Denver coverage, to actually look at the maps, I was surprised by how close they are. Uh, it, it's, you've really got to study them closely just to find little differences in, in where, where borders are drawn. And that's because the council has been properly following the city charter, which is you're supposed to draw contiguous uh, districts as compact as possible, and, and they've really followed that. And they've also commendably followed their own, po their own policy they adopted last September, which is to say, we're going to do our best to make we sure we don't get sued under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, so we're not going to redistrict out of racial gerrymandering. We're, of course, we're going to comply with everything the Federal Voting Rights Act requires, but beyond that, we're not going to let race control over the other factors we're supposed to pay attention to. Let's get a quick take on this last one. Earlier this week, the Denver City Council voted 11 to 1 to repeal the subpoena powers of the city auditor. The decision came after one, a one-year battle in which Auditor Tim O'Brien sued the city in response to a 2021 amendment that limited an auditor's subpoena rights. O'Brien claimed that the amendment was a violation of the city charter. Uh, Tyrone, we start with you on this short take. Um, auditor does a whole lot of things here. Do you think the council made the right move? So I don't love the, the move that the council made. Um, I think that there needs to be transparency, um, you know, in government. And I think when you have an auditor, they need to be given, you know, all of the tools in their tool belt in order to, to do that job. Um, as someone who does litigation, I'm you know, very familiar with uh, trying to obtain records and, and discovery. And this sort of idea that you don't have the power to subpoena, right? You don't have the power to actually have those records and those documents off you know, off-site so that you can analyze them. You know, there's all sorts of, uh, you know, technological means and, and resources that you can bring to bear to actually really dig in and figure out what's going on. Um, I've been in those situations where, no, you actually have to go down to the office and you are given a certain amount of time uh, between business hours to sit in their office and, and do these examinations. It's not the same. And I think it's in the public's interest and it's in our community's interest for our auditor to have the power and the ability to go in there and actually do a good, thorough job. And I think that this limits. Patty, Westford's done some great coverage of this issue. Uh, what do we need to know? Well, that we would like subpoena power, too, but I don't think that's going to happen. So in this case, yes, the auditor absolutely should have that power. The problem came up last May when a bill, an ordinance was passed, and an amendment was put on by Kevin Flynn limiting the subpoena power just to get the bill through. But we've had a year to fix it. Um, Auditor Tim O'Brien sued to get rid of that one part. Instead, the city council pulled the whole thing, and now they've got to go back to the drawing board. I hope they write, write it correctly. They work with Tim O'Brien, get the subpoena power, and if they want to give it to me too, I'll take it. <laughs> David, where does the council? Where should the council go from here? The dispute, which the council's 12 to 1 on, on this against the auditor, is they say it's fine for you to have subpoena power. We want you to do that. But when you do subpoenas that are going to involve people's personal business records, like in, in, uh, with minimum wage enforcement, the auditor uh, can get the employment records of every individual in the city of Denver, for example, on things where you've got personal private information that happens to be in the hands of a city government agency, at least on the, the first step in an audit, sometimes those should be be conducted without taking all the records off-site electronically. Tim O'Brien is suing. He says the Denver City Charter 
correctly says the Denver City Charter requires that auditors be in compliance with generally accepted accounting principles as promulgated by the Comptroller General of the United States for U.S. government audits. But none of those regulations ever say that an auditor has to have subpoena power. They say that the auditor has to be able to do effective audits. And his argument is, well, implicitly that means uh, if I can't hoover up all the electronic records whenever I want, then I can't do proper audits. Uh, Eric, your thoughts on the effect that the Comptroller General of the United States might have on, on this issue yeah. and beyond? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly where I was going. <laughs> Not. Uh, I regard this as a spat between uh, you know two different arms of government. I don't think it is the most momentous spat I have ever come across. I, what Tyrone says uh, makes some sense to me in terms of the powers of the auditor. That said, I would take Tim O'Brien, our current city auditor, a lot more seriously as a watchdog if I also had observed him being a watchdog in his longtime role as the board chair of Colorado Para, where he was anything but a watchdog there. I don't know where I come down on this. Uh, let it go with that. It's time for a very, very part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. If you are going to take your gun into the state house, which I would argue is not a good idea in any case, you should hold on to it, which our lawmaker Holds Harper was unable to do this week. David. Fort Lewis College has banned, supposedly, what it calls hate speech in public places because that, it says we've got free speech, you know, you want to chalk something for an event, but you can't do things that are illegal like obscenity, which they're actually, that's true, and hate speech, with which there is no ban on that in the United States. There's no such thing as hate speech as a legal category. It's just something that people use uh, as a form of trying to suppress other people from saying an idea they don't like. Eric. Sometimes irony is just too wonderful. This is in the case of Ellen Kessler, who was uh, a Polis appointee to the Board of Agriculture, has become a total nemesis to the agricultural industry in the state, has long talked about animal cruelty in sometimes extreme terms. Well, she was just charged this week with 13 misdemeanor counts of animal cruelty. Maybe she, she should take care of her own nest first. Tyrone. City and County of Denver in federal court this week, still trying to evade accountability um, and not accept responsibility to the brutality it visited upon protesters last uh, two summers now ago uh, during uh, coming together of our, our, our community. Time to say something nice about somebody rather quickly. Patty. Sign of the Times, the Coors Brewery Tour comes back today at $20 a head. Hey <laughs> David. The website Boardhog, which does a great job watching the Denver Public Schools, published something by former liberal Democratic state uh, legislator Dan Grossman explaining why the, the current Denver board's attack on innovation schools violates state law. Eric. Here, here on that one. And to Boardhawk, uh, somebody who was around this table about a month ago, uh, six weeks ago, Kalina Kulig, a high school student at George Washington, won the both sides of the story competition here, published a really compelling column in last Sunday's Denver Post. Viewers here should go read it about this Honors for All program, which you can imagine what Honors for All really means in its application. My column this coming week is on the same topic. Tyrone. As the son, grandson, and sibling of veterans, uh, the legislature this week uh, resolving to recognize the service and sacrifice of black uh, veterans in our country. Here, it's great to see. That is all the time we have for Colorado Inside Out this week. For everybody here at PBS 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for watching. Good night.